0: Great to have those of you who are watching on the podcast with us, as well as all of you. Just before I start, I want to say a word to the men that Men's Fraternity has started last week, and uh, this will be it. Uh, we're going to do uh, this between now and March. That'll be it for a couple years, so great way to be a better husband, father, uh, get, get, make a friend. We're going to be talking about work and career and finding adventure, so even if you've never been, I encourage you to come Wednesday, 6.30 a.m. or 7.30 p.m., Well, when I was a freshman in college, I uh, lived by myself in an apartment, and I didn't have a lot of friends. And I remember this one time getting into a conversation with another college student at church, and he asked a lot of questions, and he seemed just sort of genuinely interested in who I was. And eventually he said, well, tomorrow, why don't you come over to my frat, and we'll have lunch, and we can hang out some more. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to have a friend. This is a very sad story. It ends badly, because when I got there, guess what I got instead of a friend? I got a sales pitch to be an encyclopedia salesman, and if I did, then he would get a commission. Isn't that a sad, sad story? I think that's kind of an extreme version of what a lot of us do in subtler ways, and that is to approach relationships based on what can I get out of it? What, what's this relationship going to do for me? We're doing a sermon series called Gather and Scatter about building community wherever we are. But really, this is a sermon series on how to have good relationships. Marriages, friendships, with coworkers here at church, how do we have good relationships? Because every study ever done shows that what really makes people joyful for, for lasting joy, it's not money, it's not accolades, it's relationships. And we all, I think, want those. We want good marriages. We want that great friend that we have fun with and who encourages us. And Jesus always intended the church not to be an organization or an institution, but a movement fostered by a community. And biblical community has three characteristics. It's a group of people radically devoted to Jesus, radically devoted to each other, and radically devoted to healing the world. And here's the thing, if you have any two of those three, you've got a good thing, but you do not have biblical community until you have all three. But here's the problem. Community is hard, isn't it? Because people are irritating. Just be honest, right? They can get on your nerves. I mean, even the word relationship for some of us, it just kind of makes us squirm because it just sounds so squishy and there might be an emotion involved and that sounds awkward, right? And our culture... just does everything to work against relationship in lots of ways. For instance, we're very individualistic. We like to have things our way. But in marriage or friendships, you can't always have things your way. Over the break, my wife and I wanted to have a family bonding time with our kids by going to a movie together. And Our youngest two, though, they didn't want to go, so we took our 14-year-old daughter to see Gravity because that was the movie that we wanted to see, so that was the movie we're going to see. No discussion at all. And it's a great movie, but super intense. Like, If you haven't seen it, it's about an astronaut who gets knocked loose during a spacewalk and is in orbit over the Earth, and she's trying to get back down to Earth. Super, super intense. And throughout the whole thing, my daughter had her legs scrunched up against her chest, literally whimpering, I wanted to see Disney's Frozen. <laughs> All right, so there's some more money we've got to put into the therapy fund. Right? This is why we've never done a, a sermon series on, on parenting here before, because you don't want to hear that from me. <laughs> Community, relationship, a problem for her because she couldn't have things her way. The other thing that erodes relationship is the fact that we live in a consumer culture, and unconsciously we start to treat everything from co- with a consumer mentality, even... Uh, what's going on here, Andy? Con- connection problem? Are we good now? Okay. Uh, where was I? I lost my train of thought. Okay. Conconsciously, we start to approach everything from sort of a consumer mentality, including our relationships, like the guy I told you about who wanted me to be an encyclopedia salesman. All he saw was potential profit in me. I think we tend to approach, we don't do it that extreme, but we tend to approach people with a kind of a what am I going to get out of this relationship kind of an attitude. Now, I want to be clear. It's not wrong to want friends so that we can get, have our needs met. That, that's, that's what other people are for. <laughs> All right. We're going to do it this way. That's what other people are for. Thank you, Kyle. <laughs> Is it on? Yes. Okay. All right. We're good. All right. We're good? All right. Where was I? um it's not wrong to want to have relationship notice i'm just a professional man i just pick it right up where i left off nothing throws me off chairs falling in the back sound system problems i just keep going you may not be listening but i'm continuing to talk you're all like what's going on in the room but i'm just going to keep talking It is not wrong to want to be with others so that our needs are met. That's part of what people are for. That's part of what relationships are all about. But taken too far, our consumer culture, our our consumer approach to relationship just starts to wreck them. And I think you see this all over the place. You see it in how folks date, for instance. People will talk about the list they have of things they want in a potential spouse. Right, like oh you are like going to a supermarket to pick out a rutabaga or something, you know? Like, this is what I need in a spouse. Well, awesome. And underneath that, the underlying question there is, are you the right person for me? Let me answer that for you. No. Nobody is. Nobody can meet all of our needs. Are you the right person is the wrong question. The right question is, are we becoming more of who God created us to be through this relationship? Because as long, as long as the question is, are you the right person, the minute it doesn't seem like that other person's meeting our needs, we're not getting what we want, right, out, boom, we start to go try to find a different spouse. Happens all the time. Similar things happen in friendships. Sometimes people will say to me, I want, I want more friends. And I'll say, well, what about this person or that person? And they'll say, ah, yeah, not my type of person. I don't think they can meet my needs. You know what they really mean a lot of times? They're not in the social sphere that I want to be in. They're not, aka, they're not the cool kid crowd, or they're not going to meet. They won't meet my needs. Consumer mentality, or think about the maybe option on a Facebook invite. Like, what's that there for? Like, what are you really saying when you hit maybe? Maybe I'll go to your event unless someone cooler invites me to something else. Right? Then it's no. You even see consumer mentality in how people approach church. We talk about going church shopping. Now. It's right to try to find the right church for you. That's a good thing to do. But it kind of sometimes goes too far. And you get in a church, and the minute there's a conflict situation over the smallest thing, boom. Some people just leave, which robs us of the depth of community, which comes a lot of times from working through hard times together and coming out with stronger relationships on the other side. One of, I got a really close friend who I once had to fire but we worked through that, and now he is one of my greatest encouragers. Community is hard, but it's worth it. Yeah, you know, and that's what's great about church. There's always someone here that you don't like. That's a service we provide. And I want you to know, we work hard at that, right? Do we have enough unlikable people here? Yeah, I think we're good, okay. Well, you can see the result of sort of what happens to relationships when we approach it with, what can you do for me? Right? You can see that in the story that Ryan just read about Jacob. Because Jacob approached everyone with a, what can this relationship do for me attitude. If you go back through his story, he tricked his brother Esau into selling his inheritance for a bowl full of porridge. And then after he did that, Esau got mad. But then after he did that, Jacob went to their father, Isaac, who was blind and pretended to be Esau to get his blessing. And the Bible says that Esau was a hairy man. So Jacob wore animal skins so that when Esau, or so when Isaac touched him, he would think that he was Esau. Okay, animal skins, how hairy was Esau? (laughs) Like that's just gross, right? Like that's just like really hairy. So Isaac gives Jacob the father's blessing, which was thought to have sort of the power to make you prosperous, but it should have gone to Esau because he was the oldest son. So Esau gets mad and threatens to kill Jacob, and Jacob runs away to his uncle Laban's house, where he meets Rachel and Leah. And the Bible says that Leah had weak eyes. The Hebrew there is kind of of dicey, but the context is clear. It means that Leah was not very good-looking, but Rachel was a hottie. Okay, that's real clear in the Hebrew, actually. It is. It says Hati, only in Hebrew. (laughs) And so Jacob offers to work for Laban for seven years for the right to marry Rachel, to which Laban says, ah, it's better that I give her to you than some other guy. Well, now that's what you want to hear from your father-in-law, right? Might as well be you, good as anyone else. So Jacob works seven years for Rachel, You know, and this is one of those passages people will point to and say, see how backward, how primitive the Bible is, man? I mean, you know, know, working to buy a wife, it's just so backward. And it's true. I mean, it is hard to imagine that there was once a time where a woman's looks could determine the whole course of her life and a guy would work really hard to get enough money to win the right to marry her. Thank goodness we're beyond that, right? So much more advanced these days. So at the end of seven years, Jacob says to Laban, give me my wife, my time is completed and I want to lie with her. Isn't that a romantic proposal? (laughs) Such a romantic, that guy. See, even though he loves her, he still sees her as a commodity. And what can I get out of this relationship? And I think we do similar things. Like those of us who are parents, for instance, with our kids, we love them and yet it is so easy to also see them as just an extension of our life plan, isn't it? And if they don't turn out to be the athlete or the scholar or the whatever that we had hoped for, then we're disappointed. Because as much as we love them, deep down, we also want them to make us happy and make us look good. What can they do for me? So Rachel and Jacob get married, but then on the wedding night, Laban substitutes Leah instead of Rachel. And shockingly, Jacob consummates the marriage anyway. Okay, like how dark was it in that tent? And I just love the way that the verse reads, when morning came, there was Leah. <laughs> Oops. We're like, how did that happen? Oh, no, it's Leah. It's actually a little less weird than it seems. I mean, at the wedding, she would have been heavily veiled, so you wouldn't have been able to see her face, and, 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 and who knows how much wine Jacob drank that day. I mean, apparently quite a bit. So then Jacob goes, and he confronts Laban, and he says, it's not our, Laban responds, and says, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older. Totally lame excuse. For deceiving Jacob. But also probably very convicting for Jacob. Which may be why he doesn't protest. Because you see, Laban here just gives Jacob a taste of his own medicine. Laban is using Jacob, getting as much work out of him as he possibly can. Which is what Jacob's been doing to everyone else in his life, just using him. In fact, there's a lot of parallels. By stealing Esau's blessing, Jacob swaps younger for older, just like Laban does here. Leah comes to Jacob heavily veiled, just like Jacob went to Isaac, wearing animal skins, pretend, pretending to be someone else. In the night, Jacob calls out for Rachel, but Leah answers, just like Isaac called out for Esau, but Jacob answered. A lot of parallels. Jacob here feels what it is like to be used for what he can give someone, not love simply for who he is. And the results are devastating. From here on out, this family just flies apart. Jacob and takes Le- uh, Leah and Rachel, they run away, total rift in the family that is permanent and never healed. But it's also good news because it's a turning point in Jacob's life. And after this, Jacob gradually stops using people and even reconciles with his brother Esau. So then that raises the question, how do we get to a turning point like Jacob does? How do we begin to get as free as possible from approaching others with a what am I going to get out of this relationship mentality? Now, that's always going to be there a little bit because we're human beings, but how do we get more free from it? Well, last week, Jesse Rice preached on Romans 12, and I'm going to pick up where he left off because Jacob gives us kind of a negative example but, 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 but Romans 12 gives us a positive example of what relationships can look like. And the Apostle Paul writes, love must be sincere. That is genuine, authentic, not using one another. So what does it mean for love to be sincere, authentic? Two things to stop doing and two other things to start doing. First, in order for love to be genuine, stop looking to people for what only Jesus can give. An atheist writer named Ernest Becker writes that in our culture, we put a lot of spiritual freight into finding that right person to marry, right? A lot of weight on that. And he speculates that the reason we do that is because we're a secular culture. Back in ancient times, you usually didn't get married to fulfill your deepest spiritual longings. That was God's job, not your spouse's job. But in our culture now, we don't have that so much anymore. So with our spouse, but also with our friends, often we use them to make us feel validated, loved, like we matter, like we're important, because we're not letting Jesus do that. So we're using others to fill in the, fill in the gap. As the Jacob story goes on, Leah begins to have children. And she gives every son a name that expresses her longing for Jacob. Like Reuben, which means misery. Okay, how'd you like your mom to name you misery, right? Like, that is a total bummer. Leah says, the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Or Levi, which means attached. And she says, surely my husband will become attached to me now. See, she's using her kids to get to Jacob, who she thinks is going to fulfill all of her longings until her fourth child, who she names Judah, which means to praise. And she said, this time I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. And I think the implication there is that now she doesn't have to have kids to get to Jacob because she's taken her deepest desires and placed them on the Lord instead and is finding fulfillment there, which frees her to love Jacob and love her kids, not try to use them, but just love them for who they are, not what she can get out of them. When we connect with Jesus, we stop using people to get what only Jesus can give us. And by the way, we're going to give you a great opportunity to connect with Jesus. Last weekend in March, we're going to have a conference here called Immerse. Encourage you guys to be there. All about connecting with Jesus, experiencing him. Because when that happens, we stop using people to get what only he can give us. Second way out of using people is to stop auditioning. Yourself and other people. Because that's what we tend to do, isn't it? We audition people. Are you the friend I want? Are you the spouse I want? And they're auditioning us. A lot of pressure. But that's a really good way to miss out on some cool friendships. Passage in Romans says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. As you may know, in Greek there are four verbs for the word love. Philos, which means friendship. In Philadelphia it means brotherly love, friendship kind of love. Eros was romantic love. Agape was sacrificial love. And then the fourth verb, storge, which is used in this passage when it says be devoted to one another. And storge unites people that wouldn't have anything to do with each other Normally, but they just get thrown together and find that they like each other anyway. Folks who, if they hadn't been in the same family or the same church or the same platoon or whatever, would have had nothing to do with each other but find that they kind of like each other after they were thrown together. C.S. Lewis writes that it's when we find ourselves growing fond of old so-and-so simply because they happen to be there, not because they suit our fancy or meet our needs. That's sincere love. And Lewis goes on to say dogs and cats should always be raised together. It broadens their minds so. And again, that's what's great about church. Puts a lot of dogs and cats together, right? Or huskies and cougars, however you want to look at it. Because one of the deepest kinds of relationships and kinds of community that we can have is with folks who are very different than we are, but we find ourselves connected by our common need for Jesus. And this often happens, for instance, when we serve together or do some project together. And that is, a, serving together is one of the best ways to make community. I think especially for men, because men, I think we don't tend to do as well sort of trying to build relationships sort of face-to-face. But if we're doing something together, a lot of times some great friendships can come out of that. Serve together, great way to build community. And a great way, sometimes you find yourself friends with people that you might not have chosen. Now, in saying that, I am not saying that, you know, all of our friends should be people that we wouldn't choose and that we don't like and that are, you know, nothing but black holes of emotional need that suck us dry. No, I'm not saying we need people to encourage us. Now, parenthetically, I would say all of us should have a little bit of space, a few extra grace-required people in our lives because that's how we grow and some of those people can end up being a blessing. So we all need a few difficult people in our lives. And, you know, if you don't have a difficult person in your life, talk to one of the pastors so we can assign someone to you maybe even one of the pastors. We all need a few of those people, but we also need lots more people who encourage us and give us life and we have fun with. But auditioning people for that role commodifies them and is a really good way to miss out on some great friendships. Some of you have heard me talk before about how after college I worked as an intern at a church, and one of the other interns was a guy that I just, I could not stand him, man, and he could not stand me. He viewed me as a, as a kind of arrogant, cold academic. I viewed him as a shallow fraternity jock. And, and, and we just, we just we couldn't get along. And we were on the same staff at church, at a church, and we didn't talk to each other. So our boss saw this and he said, you know what? I need you two to man the office every Monday morning, but you have to do it together. Well, for the first couple of Mondays, we didn't say a word to each other. Just sat there in sort of stony silence. But finally, one day he said to me, you were an English major, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, so was I. So we started talking about writers that we liked, found we had actually a lot in common. Conversation just took off from there. Well, as that year went on, we started getting a little deeper, talked about our struggles, our victories. We did a lot of fun stuff together, went and did, you know, hikes and cool stuff together, just had a lot of fun. And we have continued to do that for 28 years. And we've helped each other be better husbands, fathers, pastors. And he once gave me a book, and inside it he wrote to Scott, who taught me never to judge a book by its cover. Now, if I had auditioned him for the role of lifelong friend, he never would have made the cut. We would never have chosen each other. But God had different ideas. Stop auditioning people. It's a good way to miss a great friendship. Which brings me to the two things to start doing. And the first is this, start praying this prayer. Lord, show me who you want me to be in relationship with. Who are you calling me to? Start praying that prayer. Instead of auditioning, ask God who he's got in mind. And then keep your eyes open. And then the second thing to start doing, start noticing, asking, and blessing. Just notice people for who they are, not for what you can get from them. If you meet someone new and you ask a simple question like, what do you do for a living? And they answer. Then don't just stop there. Oh, far out. That's cool. Go a little deeper, right? You know, ask something like, well, what do you like best about that? And what do you like least? And then boom, now suddenly you're in a real conversation that could lead to a friendship. And if if you know them a little better, you know, go a little deeper in your conversation. It's the difference between walking into a room and thinking, here I am, and walking into a room and thinking, there you are. Notice... Ask questions. Get to know them. And then, and this is your homework for this week, so you got homework this week. Here's your homework this week. Bless someone who can do nothing for you. A few days ago, I was in a long line to get coffee, and the clerk was just taking a really long time, just taking forever. And it's possible that I might have looked a little irritated and grouchy, just a a little possible. Well, when I finally got up to the counter, all irritated and grouchy, and I ordered, and then I tried to pay, she said, oh, he already paid, and pointed to the guy in front of me, in line. I don't receive gifts very well, plus I knew that I'd look pretty grumpy, so I said, oh, you don't have to do that for me. And he said, oh, yes, I do. I have no idea what he meant by that. (laughs) There was sort of a tone there that I didn't quite understand. And all I could think was, I hope he doesn't go to the church, because that would be bad. But all week, I kept remembering what he'd done, and it just kind of made me happy. This little simple thing just kind of encouraged me and made me happy all week. This simple blessing he gave to someone who couldn't do anything for him. And if it was one of you, by the way, thank you, and I'm sorry I was grouchy. (laughs) Passage in Romans says this, Honor one another above yourselves. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality, a.k.a. bless someone who can't do anything for you. And do you know why this is so important? Especially in our culture, because when we do that, that's like a training exercise that begins to break that habit in us, begins to break the attitude of, what can I get from this relationship? We're just giving, pure and simple. I recently heard a story from a woman named Carol, who after 23 years in a marriage with very little respect, found herself divorced. She lost her dream house, ended up in this dilapidated, rundown rental instead. And she said, I felt ugly, used up, and broken. And that's what happens when we do relationships with what can I get from this. And at one point she got down on her knees and stared at this huge split in the linoleum and said, God, if you get me out of this, I'm yours. Whatever you want, God, I just need three things, a job, a new life, and to be loved. I love that. Whatever you want. I do, however, have some requirements. Consumer thing even toward God, right? Well, the only job she could find was at a homeless shelter for women that, that, that took in sort of mentally ill, drug addicts, all kinds of things. But the position paid a salary, provided a place to live, and she said, at least I'd be needed and loved. So what am I going to get out of it? Well, when she got there, she was really disappointed because the, the, the place was a mess. The women didn't help at all. There were ants crawling all over, dirty dishes, all kinds of stuff. She got mad. She said, God, you tricked me. You threw me in with a bunch of women who act like spoiled kids. One day she just lost it, just slammed her fist down on the counter and shouted, none of you appreciate me, and I don't, I don't even want to be here in case she hadn't noticed, which they probably had noticed, actually. And later that day when they had their daily prayer time, Carol refused to hold anybody's hands. As soon as it was over, she got in her car and just sped off yelling at God. Came home about midnight and overheard some of them talking, some of the women talking. And one of them said, man, something's really riled up Miss Carol today. I ain't getting her way. And then a woman named Gail said, y'all give her a break. She's one of us. She's got nowhere to go. We're her family now. And Carol was furious. She thought, I'm not one of them. They're addicts. I'm not one of them. Well, the next morning, Gail came into her room with a cup of coffee and said, here, Miss Carol, just the way you like it, and I'm sorry about yesterday. And then Carol, Carol asked Gray, uh, Gail, well, why she was always smiling, because Gail spent half her day in addiction class and the other half flipping burgers. And Gail said, well, because I have so much. And Carol said, are you kidding? Look around. you got nothing. And Gail said, but I have you, and I'm glad you're here because we need you bad. And then she smiled, and as she did, Carol noticed these, eyes, these lines around her eyes that were similar to the ones that, lines that Carol had around her eyes. And she said, something angry inside me just melted. And she said, Jesus, I get it now. I understand about abusive relationships. You've been preparing me for this for years I know how they feel, I've been there, I am, I am one of them. And later that day as she was shopping, she prayed, God, show me how to really love these women, which is a great prayer to pray. And then she saw some roses that were free, and she thought, well, what, women, what woman doesn't like roses? So that night, they, all the women celebrated with a store-bought hamburger, which was a rare treat for them, and Carol put flowers in a vase and found some candles and told the women, we have a new tradition, our family's tradition. Every night, we'll have roses and candles for dinner at our dinner table. And then they prayed, and this time Carol did hold their hands, and at the end, Gail squeezed her hand really hard. Carol squeezed back and realized that she had found a community. And that's what it's been for her ever since. A group of people who love her and who she loves. They encourage each other. They have fun together. Not because they ever would have chosen each other, because they wouldn't have. And not because Carol at first saw what they could do for her, but she stopped auditioning them. She prayed, show me who you're calling me to be friends with. And she began noticing who they really were, and she blessed them and found that in spite of their differences, they all needed Jesus, and that's what held them together. When she let go of asking, what can I get out of this, she found community, great friends, encouragement, a place to call home. So who are you auditioning? And who's auditioning you? How are you maybe using people to give you what only Jesus can give? And are you really open to relationship with anyone, even if they're different than you, even if at first you can't see how maybe they're going to meet your needs? And how can you do some of the steps I've outlined here or some that you can think of on your own to begin to let go of that, what can I get out of this relationship attitude that just kills relationships? Because when we do that, when we let go of that, our relationships, our marriages, our friendships, everything gets deeper, stronger, bigger. And you know what? We may even make a friend that we might not have chosen for ourselves, but turns out to be really cool. I'll close with a poem by a man named Billy Collins, and it's called The Lanyard. And it's about a memory he has of making a lanyard at summer camp when he was a kid to give to his mom. And he writes this. He says, She gave me life and milk from her breasts, and I gave her a lanyard. Here, she said, are thousands of meals and clothing and a good education. Here is a breathing body and a beating heart. And here, I said, is the lanyard I made at camp. And when she took it from my hand, I was as sure as a boy could be that this useless, worthless thing I wove out of boredom would be enough to make us even. See, that sincere love, parent to child, not I love you because of what you can do for me, but I love you simply because you are which, as it turns out, is exactly how God loves you and how God loves me. So, Jesus, thank you that you love us not for what we can do for you because we can't, but simply because we are. And Jesus asked that you would help us to hear from you, to be more like you, to view others with the eyes that you see them, with eyes that you see them, Lord, so that we can have the kinds of relationships that you literally died to give us. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. One of the things that we are able to do because of your generosity is, is, as many of you know, we were able to buy some houses. And two of those houses are for Eastside Academy students one for boys, one for girls. That's the alternative high school that meets here in our building. And these Kids often come from very unstable home lives or or they're actually even homeless. And so we've got these homes that house them, one for boys, one for girls. Well, in the middle, we call them the Renew Homes. In the middle is what's called the center house. And we have some interns there whose job it is to work with the Eastside Academy students to, you know, once a week give the house parents a day off and vacation and all that, other things that they do with the Eastside Academy students. And they are really living out what I just preached about. This is a group of people who maybe wouldn't have chosen each other, they were just sort of thrown together, but through serving together, have found really what community is all about. So we want you to take a look.
1: The Renew Program is a partnership between Bellevue Presbyterian Church, Eastside Academy, and Union Gospel Mission, and it provides a loving, stable, living environment for at-risk students who have come from the opposite of that.
2: These are Eastside Academy students who are coming out of homelessness or unstable housing. The center house is located in between the boys' and girls' homes and allows me to live in community with the students I serve.
1: I accepted this position ultimately because I couldn't say no to loving on students and being a part of a community that would teach me and really force me to grow into a better person. When I first came to Bell to talk about the position itself, uh, just the support I gained just being here before I even had the job, I felt supported and encouraged um, into a position of ministry.
3: I feel like it's been a great opportunity just for me to live in community well and get a chance to be um, experiencing the way a church runs, the way ministry runs and also having this be a short-term stay versus like a long career decision. It was a great opportunity to just get my feet wet.
1: I was really afraid that I would be bad at being in a position of responsibility and authority. Caring for a house full of students in the way that a mother would really scared me and I didn't think I'd be good at it. But over the course of being here, it's gotten a lot easier and I've really grown into the role. Um, I found my voice in a lot of ways.
2: When I first took this job, I was a little nervous because my life story is pretty different from the life stories of the students I'm working with. But God allowed me to relate to them through an outpouring of love that I had never imagined was possible. It's a really cool opportunity to not only see students change in their time in those homes, but I get to be a part of that change.
3: Simply spending time with them is a large part of our job. And we get to see how they're doing in a very intentional way as well through organizing house meetings, um, having house dinners, um, going over there and just spending time at their house and showing them love and just inviting them into the life that Jesus has for them as much as we can and as best as we can.
2: I think one memory that will always stick with me from this job is when one of our students came to me at camp one year and told me that he was experiencing joy for the first time. And as tears were streaming
3: down his face, he asked me if I could help him understand how to feel joy. This experience really made me grow into who I am now, and I think that moving forward, I'll be feeling confident and competent in any job setting that I'll be walking into.
1: The community aspect of this job is just something that's taught me so much about uh, the way God's kingdom works and it's just made me so glad to be a part of God's kingdom and being able to work alongside brothers and sisters has just been the best part. It is the most life-changing experience I've ever had. I've grown in ways that I never expected and I have learned a lot about Christ and myself and what it means to live in a community.